BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Kishibashi grew up like a lot of Gen X people of color in the suburbs. He loved his family and held on to their culture at home, but at school, he just tried to fit in with the white kids. He became a celebrated violinist and brilliant songwriter, but something about his dual Japanese and American identities wasn't adding up to a whole person. So he went on a pilgrimage to the places where Japanese Americans were incarcerated during World War II, improvising music on site and building a documentary around what turned out to be a transformative experience. Musician Kishibashi joins us right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We have a very special show for you today. The musician Kishi Bashi joins us. And in the winter, our sentence was stiff. We froze to the bone. That's a clip from F. Delano, a song that's part of his most recent and monumental project over most of the last decade. He's been working on a documentary, a song film titled Omoyara, which is about his journeys to remote camps where Japanese Americans were incarcerated during World War II. The film is a beautiful personal exploration about what it means to connect with the pain that your specific community walked through, not just to learn about it, but attempt to be in the spaces to feel the feelings and then transmit those across the generations. Next month, he's releasing a double LP accompaniment to the film, and he'll be touring, too, including a date here in San Francisco. But first, he joins us here today. I'm a big fan. Thank you for joining us, Kay. I'm a big fan. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) So, Kishibashi is your musical name. It's your performance name. And this film is really about the kind of duality of identity. And I was wondering what you found freeing or constricting about having a musical identity in addition to being, you know, Kaoru Ishibashi, your real name. 
Well, I mean, it was freeing in that, like, um, I got a chance to really explore myself. But it was also constrictive in that, like, I don't like doing that. Like, looking mm. at myself. You know, I'm, I'm, I like, as a musician, I like to to project. But I, up until recently, did not like to, to look inside. Huh. So even though your songs oftentimes were, you know, about love and loss and other things, you didn't feel like those were necessarily giving of yourself or showing yourself? Yeah, I think I was, like, generally introverted, you know, like a lot of artists are. So you kind of just, art is your medium to express yourself instead of, like, literally telling you about it. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, your your family. Your family came in the 60s uh, from Japan, right? Your dad's an engineer. Oh, yeah. Um, and settled in uh, the Japanese enclave, not actually, of Norfolk, Virginia, <laughs> right? <laughs> the, 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 definitely not enclave of, yeah, sure. Um, what was it like? Uh, growing up on the East Coast as a Japanese American is, is definitely different than the West Coast. There's a lot of Japanese people and Asian people here, you know, yeah. I've discovered as I've recently moved here. <laughs> and so when you were, you know, growing up in Virginia, like, did you feel like you were connected to Japanese? Because you did grow up speaking Japanese and your family sort of made an effort to kind of keep up with Japanese traditions, right? Yeah. So, I, you know, honestly, I felt kind of isolated because I think... Whereas like in the West Coast, you know, you have a lot of like these communities and, you know, that support each other uh, individually and through, uh, through the, the community. But I think like on my own, you know, I felt like I was just this, this fish in this large ocean of hmm. not white people. Yeah. How did... <laughs> Sorry, uh, ocean of white people. Ocean, Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, how did your, you know high school classmates, you know, in Norfolk, Virginia? Like, how did, did they were just sort of like, oh, yeah, this is our Asian friend who's also kind of white? Was it like that style? Uh, I don't think they, uh, I don't think they would necessarily point it out. Hmm. But, you know, I get it in other ways. Like what? Oh, just, you know, just your average racism, you know, stereotyping, these kind of things. But it was, it was quite commonplace. You know, I'm like old. Right. I remember remember the (laughs) 80s and the 90s. (laughs) Things are different, a lot, a lot better now. Yeah. I know, you know, looking back at my own high school experience um, in rural Washington, um, there was so much casual racism, like in a way that I think probably kids now would have a difficult time (laughs) understanding or connecting with, you know, like that, that people would just say racist slurs, like just as part of life. Yep. (laughs) I mean, that's the kind of thing is like, you just have to phase it out and you have to point it out. Yeah. And then eventually kind of goes away. Yeah. Um, you have a line in the documentary where you say, you know, you're standing in front of your high school and you point at it and you say, this is where I first learned I was Asian. <laughs> uh, like, what did, what did you mean by that? Well, it's the kind of thing where you don't really think about race until it's pointed out to you. Like, you know, you normally you just go around, you just want to listen to metal and, you know, <laughs> uh, and like meet girls or whatever, you know. But I think it's not apparent until people really point out how different you are. Huh. I think is that, was, that the kind of a uh, high school you were? Metal, metal head? <laughs> uh, I was a male in the 90s. So yeah, metal was a big part of my life for sure. Um, at the same time, you had also picked up the violin. Uh, I think you started at seven, right? And were you immediately a virtuoso on the violin or were you just, what was your... Uh, uh, <laughs> immediate virtuoso. <laughs> yeah. um, no, I, I was like like every good Asian boy. I, I started violin when I was like six, you know. And so it's a there's a there's a there's a, a music studying um, discipline called Suzuki violin. And they start and they make little tiny violins, and so and that's how I started. Oh wow! And in that process, did you love it right away? I think I like yeah, I liked it enough that I kept it. <laughs> like a lot of people don't like it, and they they're forced to do it, but then they they pick it up later in life. 
And you go to Berklee College of Music, right? Yeah, I went to Berklee College of Music. I studied jazz violin for a while and film scoring. That was my 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 uh, backup plan. Ah, that's so interesting. And so this work, this kind of monumental work, where I'm calling it here. <laughs> um, Talk to me about like what the overarching idea of what you're trying to do, of which there are these different kind of outputs of this kind of core project. Yeah. So as a as a musician, Kishibashi, you know, I put out an album every like two years, you know, and then I think what I wanted to do is I wanted to challenge myself and make, uh, you know, because I was always into film and it interested me. And so and the subject matter really interested me in particular. And so I kind of tried to create a unified like artistic statement of you know exploratory documentary filmmaking um with music and so i tried to write songs and music and improvise violin uh, on screen and then have it as a way to kind of narrate uh a, you know a difficult history that i wanted to talk mm. about and so the the spine of it is this kind of pilgrimage that you took right so where where did you end up going along the way and and were you immediate were you going to the place and just like immediately improvising uh, music, or was it more? You know, you would go back time and again, and then be like, "Okay, now I understand this part of Wyoming, and now I'm going to play." Well, I think we. Uh, my initial trip was on the West Coast, so I took a trip with a bunch of grad students, and we went up from uh, from like Arizona. Poston is a is a camp, incarceration mm-hmm. camp there, and then you know, and then went up to through Manzanar and the West Coast, and mm-hmm. and kind of got a feel of the the community and the the research surrounding it, and then and then eventually we met. You know, we had some made some friends in uh, Heart Mountain, Wyoming, mm-hmm. and so that's the place that we kind of used as a central location to go back mm-hmm. to, and and we, uh, you know, became a part of that community because mm-hmm. we made a lot of friends. What, when you were coming into it cold and you were first going to see these incarceration camps, like what first kind of struck you? Did anything stand out about those places? Well, sometimes you know it was, uh, and so I'd bring my violin. As a, as just in case it was inspiring, but also like I knew I had to, I wanted to do something artistic, you know, location-based improvisations. And so I think, you know, what struck me is that sometimes it would be quite pleasant and that kind of disturbed me. Hmm. And then, and then sometimes I would, it would be not pleasant. Like I chose places to go to like in the, Arkansas in the winter, you know, it was quite cold. And so like, because I wanted to represent visually what it was like. Mm-hmm. And so I think it, it took a while for me to realize that, you know, it's really about how you feel about it and how the, the stories that you bring of the, the experiences that you heard and internalized and bringing those to the locations is really what makes it mm. emotional. Yeah, I think one of the things that has always um, most disturbed me about it all was that people tried so hard to make life normal. You know, one of our, I, I think I've told the story on the radio before, but um, Chiora Obata, his daughter, he's a Japanese um, artist. His daughter, like, lived in the house that I uh, lived and died in the house that I live in in Oakland. And he ran, like, art schools and was, like, teaching people to draw. And they were making art in there. You know, at Manzanar, people were, like, growing apple orchards, you know, which you can still go see that have been, a few of them have been kept alive. Like, there's something about that everyday life in these places that almost seems the hardest to deal with. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of photo documentation, like Ansel Adams, you know, photographed these beautiful pictures of them, you know, what could be perceived as thriving, like gardening, smiling. And he was often criticized for that because, you know, um, know, how could you uplift this kind of dark history? But then a lot of times, you know, you think about, you know, these people who are just basically trying to make do, you have a camera pointed at you, what are you going to do? You might as well just smile. And, you know, honestly... These people were, um, 
a lot of these families were doing the best they could, protecting their children from the trauma, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think, and also just like there, there are things happening that they were creating communities and they were like falling in love and doing mm-hmm. things. And it's just a, it's a part of history that it's, it's kind of fascinates me in that they're just like us today. They do what we would do, right? If in you know in traumatic situations. I mean, do you think your daughter? show is you know in a little bit of this film right she's probably like she's like a teenager do you think that she's part of the reason for why you wanted to do this i mean she's always been a part of like like i've i've she's followed me along this this entire process mm-hmm. and i think like as i realized that oh this is the transmission of history and the transmission of you know and, and legacy and things like that and when i realized that also, I realized that her generation is more empathetic, I feel like, you mm. know, than my generation. To see this kind of, like, hope that we have in the future, I thought it would, became kind of important for the film. And so we, um, it wasn't necessarily the, the primary focus initially, but we realized that this is a, an important theme in that, like, the transmission of culture and history. Yeah, yeah. We um, are going to hear one of your improvs in a second. But first, I uh, want to let everyone know, we have Kishibashi in the studio. <laughs> he, I am staring at his guitar, which is very beautiful. <laughs> How about my KQED? Oh, uh, he also... <laughs> KQED. So. He does. Just so you know, like soccer players, we switch jerseys. <laughs> I have on a Kishibashi t-shirt. He has on uh, a KQED um, sweatshirt. Uh, he's going to play from this double LP song film from Omayari comes out uh, November 17th. I also want to say you can catch him at the Castro Theater on uh, November 8th. There's some tickets available. Um, We would love to hear from you. Was your family impacted by Japanese internment? How did that experience impact your generation and later generations? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can email your comment or questions to forum at kqd.org. Let's just listen to this beautiful improvisation from Heart Mountain. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We have Kishibashi here in the studio, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, and he's got a new double LP song film from Omiyari, which comes out November 17th, Castro Theater, November 8th, if you want to see it live. Um, Mike, one of our listeners, writes in to say, thanks for your music. In particular, thanks for I Am the Antichrist to you. Your music helps break the hard outer shell I sometimes choose to wear. Thanks for helping me to feel. Um, do you want to, Kay, do you want to play live here? you want to set up what you're going to play for a second and, and then let it rip? Yeah, sure. Um, so this is a song called Red, White, and Blue. And it's kind of a, a song I saved for, I'd written this a while back, but I'd saved for this movie because I thought it was very appropriate. And it's kind of, um, it's, it's this kind of despair that we often have with our society of like, you know, how we feel powerless to do anything mm-hmm. and the frustration that we have. And then I kind of coupled it with a, you know, a song about heartbreak. So (laughs) it's this kind of this duality. All the things. All the things. And it's it's called Red, White, and Blue. to me when you're afraid I would think it was over four years of eternity and you curse the sun and the sky what is this thing called love when the fear are silent and sober Nothing can heal this world For sadness has withered to dust It was a bit much For two lovers like us Who lived in the stars above a world Chose that simple life of your own device. There's nothing I can do. Feeling red, white, and blue. That was 
Kishibashi here live in our studio. Um, that was Red, White, and Blue, it from the new project that he's been working on. You know, um, you mentioned earlier that you spent a lot of time for this project at this Wyoming concentration camp, Heart Mountain. Um, yeah. Why do you think that was the one that kind of kept drawing you back? Well, you know, it's really about community. So we met a lot of people there, and it was, they're very welcoming. We had, I had friends who had um, families incarcerated there. Um, and also, like, um, our, my co-director, Justin Taylor Smith, was, he was based in Bozeman. Uh-huh. And so at the same time, I was really, personally, like, really experiencing the Mountain West and the kind of openness that the scenery kind of provides because, you know, you live in a city and there's tons of awful history there, but it's always rebuilt and built over. And you don't really get a chance to, to feel the earth. Yeah. So when you're out in Wyoming, there's really just fields and yeah. not that kind of, you can, you can see the history totally. often. Well, and, you know, when you're improvising, I don't want to like invoke ghosts per se, but <laughs> do you think you could feel the history in some other way as you were playing? I think... Um, I think I don't, I don't necessarily see people, but I feel emotions because that's the kind of thing that, um, because emotions are really connected to the, to what, you know, they come from people. But I think that those are something that I, this is a really tough question. So, (laughs) but yeah, I I definitely feel that way. And then do you feel like it's, you're translating almost like what you imagine the the feeling and looking at those sites, you know, in 1943 would have been like. Yeah, I think it's like, as the role of the artist is really to kind of imagine and even reimagine these things for in, in, the, in a contemporary way. And so I think that's, I, I did work hard like over and over, like workshopped a lot of ideas. And, you know, when I improvised, I'd improvise different things just in case I wanted to talk about something else for the scene. Um, do you want to talk about the title itself, which has been kind of a long-standing interest of yours? Omoyari. Omoyari is this Japanese word about compassion and empathy. It's really just about taking care of another person. And this could be a stranger. So when somebody comes to your house or having, you know, doing, putting yourself in their shoes so that you can just do good for them. Yeah. But it's kind of means more than that, right? I mean, it, like, it, I think in the film you say it's kind of putting yourself in somebody's shoes, but also like acting on what that empathetic knowledge gives you yeah so i think it's like you know if you don't you could have empathy for somebody but if you don't really do anything about it is it really doing anything at all you know and i think the idea is that if you have if you care about marginalized people then you should really do something if you have the ability to to like make a difference because there's people suffering out there and you know if you have the capacity or the money or the influence then this is something that you you should do if you really care about other people yeah yeah um, we, you know, uh, I guess it was a year or two ago, we did a show about kind of the profound impact on the, the Bay Area of the internment of, of Japanese Americans. And I, I wanted to play a clip just because um, Yewada was 102 years old when we interviewed her. And she's since passed on, I have heard. Um, she was a Berkeley resident, business owner, was arrested with her family, uh, moved through Tanferan to Topaz uh, in Utah eventually. I just wanted to, for us to you know, listen to her voice. When we first uh, got to Tanferan, first they told me that the rumors were that we would, we would be sent to uh, Utah in the middle of the desert someplace and left there, be left there. 
And then I realized they dropped, they stopped at a racetrack. It was Tamperan. I knew it was Tamperan. I had gone there with my my husband before. And um, they assigned me to a, a apartment, they called it. And uh, it turned out to be a horse stall. One thing you do not forget about camp is the smell. It mm. stays with you forever. Who's Yehwada, former... Uh internee of the Japanese concentration camps at Tanfran and Topaz. Um, she uh, died earlier this year, February 24th, uh, 2023. Um, what was it like interviewing people like her? I mean, you have a, a bunch of different interviews in the documentary. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really enlightening. And re- I'm really grateful for people giving me their time to share their story. There's a lot of people, it was interesting, if they were in their 90s, they would have been adults back then. And so it was absolutely humiliating. If they're in their 80s, they would have been children back then. And so a lot of children have a different perspective. You know, they're like, these camps were um, fun for them because they're basically congregating a bunch of kids. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like a camp. But, you know, and so that kind of confused me for a while. And then Mm. I realized that, you know, the parents were really shielding their children from this kind of humiliation. Right. Because what, what would you do, right? I mean, you'd have to do everything you could to try and be like, it's a, you know, yeah, that's not exactly where we want to go, but, you know, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fun. And the kids are like, well, like, I don't have to listen to my dad anymore. You know, like, there's a lot of, like, family structures just broken down. You know, it's kind of, you know, it's humiliating. Yeah, yeah. for sure. We have uh, Kishibashi, the musician, with us in the studio. Got a new monumental project centered around the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. Love to hear from you if you've got questions about the project or if your family was impacted by Japanese internment. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can email forum at kqed.org or you can do any of the social things for KQED Forum. Um, You know, one listener writes, do the different instruments that you play represent kind of different voices that is are songs for violin better for certain songs and guitar for another how do you choose the instrument to express yourself with Mm -hmm. this is a first question um for me Mm -hmm. violins are um very expressive in that they're very close to the human voice there's a lot of dynamic range and so i think it can be more emotional strings are very Mm -hmm. emotional you know Little violins. I don't know if your viewers can see this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've got the world's tiniest violin world's tiniest over violin. there, yeah. You know, and it's a very emotional instrument for, for a reason. Yeah. You know? Guitars are beautiful in that they can create melody almost instantly. You know? And there's a, there's a sonority that is, is intimate as well. And so I don't really choose the music. I, I usually pick up an instrument. If I feel inspired, I play. And then sometimes it's a good idea, sometimes it's not. <laughs> I almost feel like with the violin, you can create um, emotions at will, um, almost like ag- <laughs> and almost like against my will. I was listening to some of the songs, you know, walking down Cap Street earlier, but there was this kind of, you know, which is can be rough in the mornings, <laughs> and um, there was a violinist like this soaring violin <laughs> really? in my headphones, you know, oh, headphones. you, yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> Not you, on the yeah, no, no, soaring violinist, uh, that was you, okay. um, and suddenly I was like, oh, what's you know what's what's happening to my insides right now? Mm-hmm. You know the like, the sound of of, of your violin can just generate emotion all, like all on its own. Yeah, I mean it's like I said, it's like it's close to the voice. So when you sing, you know it brings you to it. Kind of remind reminds you of your 
humanity. Mm. Like it brings, it reminds you of your soul and your heart still beating, in my <laughs> yeah. opinion. Yeah. yeah. Um, one listener writes to say, you know, my grandparents on both sides were interned during World War II. After getting out, their children, my parents, were raised without Japanese culture. Because of this, all my knowledge of my culture came from my research and my parents' research, not knowledge passed down through generations. We don't know how to speak Japanese. My dad thinks this is because my grandparents were scared to be Japanese. After surviving the internment camps, they wanted to be as American as possible in order to protect their family and themselves. Kishibashi, is this cultural erasure pattern that you saw through studying Japanese internment camps? Yeah, this is probably the most heartbreaking thing that I discovered myself. You know, the incarceration is one thing, but to be stripped of one's identity, you know, internally and externally is like um, something I could relate to because it's like, or, you know, any immigrant family, you come here and you kind of make the best for you, for yourself and then make this difficult choice of like, am I going to have my kids speak, you know, English as well as possible? Should I hold back my culture, you know, so that mm-hmm. they can assimilate and, and you know, uh, ascend in American society or do I, you know, or do I do both? And I think for the longest time, it's always been you know, um, it's, it's been an extremely difficult choice. But I feel like now in society, it's uh, it's something where um, we're finally allowing more voices to be heard and, and having embracing a kind of biculturalness mm-hmm. that I wouldn't have felt comfortable saying like 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, you wrote this incredible lullaby, which you play in the in the film, um, which is just it's heartbreaking. Right. Um, can, you, can you talk about that song? You're talking about theme for Jerome? Yeah. So theme for Jerome, yeah, it's a, it's a Japanese melody. It's like... To me, it's like a very Japanese thing. And I think I wrote that melody and improvised it because I started to realize how these camps were... Um, there's a lot of Japanese culture in these camps. Like they would play shamisen and they would have haiku and, you know, they have obon and they celebrate their culture in these camps. And a lot of that culture was really suppressed because the narrative was at the time was like to get redress and to to kind of show how American look how look how American they are, you know. But the reality is they were an imprisoned immigrant population. There were people who couldn't even speak English, you know, first generation people, mm-hmm. people who were extremely distraught, caught between, you know, the country of their origin and you know America where they're trying to make a life for themselves. And then and so like kind of realizing. That this uh, that it was an immigrant population just uh, was extremely heartbreaking. Yeah, and you know the the nature of that song though is about that you're going to sing it in one language, but then you're not going to understand yeah. down the down the line, right? You're gonna you're gonna lose the words. Yeah, the alternate title is forgotten words, forgotten. and so it's about like you know you a child who may not be able to communicate with his grandparents because he's just unable to speak the language. And to me, that's heartbreaking because I could talk to my grandpa and grandma when they were alive. Yeah, I know. It's really interesting about your setup, right? Because you didn't, you came up speaking Japanese, seemed to speak it very well from the the film. Um, (laughs) Well, and (laughs) um, I don't know how you would know that, but. And also (laughs) grew up, you know, communicating very well with your family in the film, at least uh, in Japanese. Um, And then you also were growing up in like a full-on suburban American setting. So it was almost like you almost had to like learn the hyphenated identity of Japanese American. Yeah, I mean, I, I think isn't that what code switching is? Is you can a lot of people do this. You know, you you have a, a Japanese ident- you have a one identity, and then you have another one, and you kind of switch between the two. Yeah. I think that's something we just get used to. And this project for you was about kind of trying to live into the fullness of it all. 
Yeah, it, it's it's about like actually feeling good about this kind of biculturalness that exists and and being proud of it. In fact, yeah, yeah. Um, we have another um, another listener who writes in to say thank you for the beautiful program and music. I'm the lead researcher for Concha History, which works with youth volunteers to transcribe and publish mm. records of the farms that Japanese American families lost. The youth volunteers are really hungry for these authentic stories because there's a void in our history. I'm curious why you think it's taken 80 years for the mainstream to accept multiple and complex incarceration stories. Well, um, why they don't mess around the listeners. I'm just saying. <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's like a lot of, I think modern people are more, um, you know, with the advent of the internet. And I think we are, we are more sophisticated now. We're, we're ready to listen to nuanced stories. We're, we're ready to really dig into the history, even to reimagine things like, you know, there weren't any World War I movies. Now we're going back into like looking at all these like histories and kind of seeing how nuanced um, everybody was. And I think, you know, a lot of people like the farms, for example, like they don't really realize that, uh, you know, uh, I think like over 50% of the the farms the in produce, California, produce right? was like pretty much run by the Japanese. They were s- such great farmers, you yeah. know, so there's a lot of economic jealousy and at the time. And um, yeah, I think, I think now that we we can look back, we can, we can kind of, it, I think it's always up to every single generation to look back uh, and challenge every narrative to see like, what is it, what was it really like? Mm. Whose story is this? And I think that's what makes it interesting. And that's what I kind of did with this film is like, I'd look at every narrative and if it, if I had questions, I'd question it more to kind yeah. of, to kind of dig in. Yeah. I mean, you know, you mentioned the the farmers too, and that discrimination sort of didn't end after the war either. Like every time I've looked into the history of different um, plant breeders or, or Japanese um, uh, nurseries, you find that at, even after the war, other businesses tried to close ranks on them and prevent them from getting back into the business that they had lost during the oh, war. Yeah, this is a, it's nothing new in America. Yeah. We have Kishibashi here in the studio. Of course, he's a songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, and he's got a new monumental project. Comes out November 17th. It's a double LP to accompany this uh, film. You can catch him at the Castro Theater on November 8th. Um, We'd love to hear from you. I've been loving these uh, listener comments about the stories and research that you've done on Japanese internment. How'd that experience impact your generation or later generations? What are your questions for Kishibashi? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. Forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, threads. We're KQED Forum. We'll be back with more music right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're joined in the studio by Kishibashi, songwriter, instrumentalist. Just been put together this amazing project, which is sort of a, a documentary. It is music. It is like, I, how? I mean, yeah, how do you even sum up what this project is well it's called i called it a song film a song film so it's yeah it's a, it's it's a, it's songwriting and exploratory historical documentary filmmaking yeah yeah um one listener asks you know so many of these internment survivors are dying does kishi ha- hope that his music will keep attention on the issue yeah yeah i hope so i think every history is like you know, it once once the survivors pass away, it's just it becomes even more important to kind of like to carry on that legacy. Yeah, history it needs to be in the books, needs to be taught, needs to be retold, and also yeah, like kind of reembodied in a way, like you were saying, like kind of reimagined for for this moment now as people are trying to understand these histories. Yeah, I mean that's the role of like you know filmmakers and musicians and artists <clears throat> is that they constantly reimagine them in their own way, in a contemporary way. Yeah. I think. Because part of the context for this film, right, as it was as you were working on this project over the years, there were families detained and separated um, at the U.S. southern border, right, and that became kind of a, a, a key piece of the context for this work. Yeah, there's a group I work with called Sudu for Solidarity, and some of them are based here in, in the Bay Area. But you know, they're they're an immigrant detention abolition group, and the idea is that, um, and they protest against immigrant detention, but they're also descendants of incarcerees in World War II. And so the idea is that you have, the U.S. has been always incarcerating immigrants, you know, and whether, whatever your views on, um, you know, the border is, it's, it's all about, we need to have like compassion, omoyari, like empathy, mm-hmm. and approach it with that and not like feed this massive prison industrial complex that is, exists that would more than happily, det- you know, detain people for yeah. profit. Yeah. And that, you know, you have a one of the sources in the in the documentary just notes like we essentially have built a system that asks economically people to come to the country and then occasionally clamps down in these authoritarian ways. Yeah, I mean, I think people are most welcome. I mean, generally, people America. I like to think I like to think that Americans are generally nice people and welcoming. But when you know when the when the economy tanks, you know, you need people blame other people. So it's just like that's it's an easy scapegoat. Yeah. Immigrants. I'm also I'm very curious about how this work was received in Japan. Like in the documentary, you go back to Japan, you hang out with your family. It's very, it's really sweet and amazing to see every you and your cousins all hanging out. <laughs> yeah. What did they make? Did they see this as a quixotic adventure? Because, or how did they see this? Well, <clears throat> it's interesting. The ja- they have a view on the Japanese American incarceration. They they're aware of it, you know, and mm-hmm. they actually. What's interesting is they're they're most interested in the heroic like Japanese that fought in World War II against the Nazis in Europe. That's like their story. Like they they're impre- most impressed with that. They're not particularly impressed with the suffering of you know innocent civilians because I think this is my opinion that Japanese people tr- suffered tremendously in the war, like civilians mm-hmm. in World War II. Yeah, and also my mom's from Okinawa, so there was it's a little they they don't really like to talk about how brutal the Japanese military was, which I do mention. So I don't, I don't know. I, have, I haven't shown this movie in Japan, but yeah. I'm a little tense about it. <laughs> we'll did, did the visit to Japan change the documentary at all? Um, it hasn't 
No, it hasn't come out yet. No, but I mean, like, did it change? Did your visit change the way that you were seeing the documentary? Yeah. I mean, when I visited Japan, you know, because you look at World War II and you think you, you focus on one atrocity or one injustice and you... But then if you look at World War II holistically, it was an awful time for everybody. You know, the Holocaust is happening. People, you know, U.S. troops are being tortured and murdered in, you know, in Southeast Asia. And you think, like, what? Well, how is this important? You know, and it helped me to kind of contextualize that the that war is just absurd. Mm-hmm. It's just like so many civilians suffer from war that it's like it, it's not about um, ranking your trauma. It's about really focusing on things and what's important who's you know who has really risen above who's strong you know who who needs help what story needs to be told yeah um one another listener writes you know the information we learn about japanese internment camps in high school isn't in depth like what resources do you recommend for those who want to learn more about japanese internment particularly ones that highlight uh personal experiences well there's a lot of um there's a lot of organizations now. I work with Densho in Seattle, mm-hmm. and they have a lot of resources. Um, and there's museums. Densho has gathered a lot of stories, right? Stories, like people's yeah. individual, you can watch video of people yeah. through time. And there's great museums on the West Coast, like Janum in L.A. And actually, there's, there, yeah. And I think um, San Jose has a big museum, too, a Japanese-American yeah. museum. I think um, something, there might be one in San Francisco, too. But it's like, there's there's a lot of organizations, and there's a lot of graphic novels out there. There's, there's also books, you know, yeah. that can kind of portray what happened yeah from from graphic novel for you know middle-aged readers on up you can find it you can find it now um let's bring in we have a we have a call uh cause in albany welcome oh um i just wanted to say that our family was there from uh 1940 42 to 1945 we were in the camps and uh I just uh, wanted to say that the psychological effects of the camps are pretty serious. I was a young kid, so I, I, you know, I was less vulnerable to that kind of awareness. But my sister was a little older than I was. She was almost uh, not quite a teenager, but uh, just on the verge. And she, um, she had a beautiful name in Japanese that parents gave her called Umeka, which was the the smell of uh, plum blossoms, mm. and uh, she changed her name to Pat. And uh, I asked her when she became an adult, and uh, we're both adults. I said, "Why don't you use your name?" Uh, because she was a very artistic person, actually, um, and she uh, majored in Pratt Institute in Brooklyn. Mm. And she says, "No, I like Pat." And uh, that's the you know psychological effect. I think uh, one one of the many many kind of impact uh, that the camps had on you wanted to be more American. You know what I mean? Yeah. And deny she she was trying to deny her Japanese ancestry. So yeah. Well, that that's my little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like thank you thank you for your call. Um, Umeka is a beautiful name. Um, I think like. Uh, I think, you know, this happened to me as well in, in modern times, like in the 80s. You know, my name is Kaoru, and I've been going by K mm-hmm. since I was like 13. Because, you know, the A and the O next to each other, the two vowels, is just impossible to pronounce for like 
yeah, like white white people, you know. So I went by K, and then I became K Ishibashi, and then Kishibashi eventually. And then, until recently, you know, I, I haven't really pushed my name, Kaoru. Yeah. Thank you for that. Thank you for sharing that. And you know, Kaz, um, do you do you think the camps, even if you were a little bit protected because you were younger, <clears throat> what other effects do you think it it had on you anyway? Not as much as my my dad. I mean, he he had a uh, truck, and uh, he was called the Maury Express Agency mm-hmm. in Sacramento. And uh, when he uh, was sent into the camps, uh, he lost his way of living. And when he got out of the camps, uh, he ended up uh, a janitor in a church mm-hmm. in in St. Louis. Yeah, yeah. So he he yeah he lost his his dignity and his, uh, you know, his hmm. his company, his his work, that was uh, very important in the Japanese community. So, yeah, I think the effects, yeah, were great. Hey, Gus, thank you for sharing the story. Yeah, Just thank you. So important to hear these testimonies about what really happened to people. And you know, when because you know, I've grown up on West Coast for basically my whole life. I didn't realize what you talked about in the film, which is that twenty thousand. Japanese people ended up in Chicago kind of to start life in a different place and, and start over. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that either. I, I met a, um, a, a community in, in Heart Mountain that was that was based in Chicago, you know, and so I think, um, yeah, it was, you know, they called them relocation camps and, and the original intent was to actually move them somewhere else, you know, because mm-hmm. the West Coast was either hostile or they just politically didn't want them back there. And so after the war, if you were willing to be assimilated, like not speak Japanese or not congregate, they would put you into, you know, they would move you to Chicago or, or put you onto like farms eventually. And, you know, eventually by the end of the war, they were, they were clearing the camps out. And, yeah. But. Um, let's hear another song. Um, sure. Well, I think we're, we're going to hear uh, Summer of 42. This is from this, you know, monumental um, project that Kishibashi has been working on. He's a, uh, Strapping on his guitar as we speak live here uh, in the studio. Do you want to? Do you want to set it up at all? Or do... sure. Summer '42. Uh, this is 1942, um, not 2042 in the future. <laughs> but um... so I look forward to your next project. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's one of the things. Uh, it's it's a, again, it's a love song, and I uh, it's, I kind of struggled to create love songs because it's you know it's such a traumatic experience for a lot of people, and um, I think. The one thing about this is that I saw a lot of resilience. I saw a lot of um, people who that was particularly inspiring to me, and that they were actually human beings, and they would fall in and out of love in these camps. And so, I think humanizing them then was something that uh, helped me to contextualize it for myself. What are the things you wanted The same as anyone Just a hand to hold a little After all is said and done And the days are long and open It's hard to view you At summer 42 when I was in love with you 
We counted stars above us We dream of Xanadu We sneak off to the desert The sound of your fancy shoes The first day that I met you I wrote down in my book I'm in love with you I'm in love with you When I was in love with you The years have turned to ages And I know you someone new I look for you with every breath Soldier wreck with solitude I climb to the highest mountain And I shout it to of you God, that was good. Uh, that was Keishi Bashi playing live here uh, in the studio. That was summer of 42. It is just ridiculous what some people can do with their voice on a guitar. Especially at like 9 at 40 night, in the morning. Yeah, at 9 40 in the morning. Exactly. Oh my God. Um, I, uh, I'm still recovering from this performance. Um, you know, I, there's something just so beautiful about writing a love song in this context, right? I mean, it was challenging, for sure. I think it, it yeah. took me a while, because the first, my first improvisations, my first melodies were all angry and, like, difficult. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And they evolved. Yeah, because, you know, I had to really, uh, release an album in my, my style. <laughs> I don't really thrive in angry music, you know? My, yeah, I think of you as, like, you know, joyful. Like, I would be, like, Sun's out, windows down, <laughs> kishibashi on the radio for like the last 10 years. And so when I started to like process this music that, I mean, some of it is still joyful, but there's these. Yeah. I mean, I think to me, honestly, it's having joy is really what gives you the agency to, to deal with this kind of awful thing and to like, to become a better person is to, to be joyful and to be happy and to be forgiving and, and to kind of enrich your life with that kind of Emotion is, to me, the most important thing. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you want to talk uh, a little bit about sort of the, I guess it's like the way that you brought this back to the community? Like you went and then played some of this music back at Heart Mountain for the community members there in Wyoming, right? Yeah, we, we screened the movie in the last pilgrimage and they were 
They're very happy. And, you know, they're, they're like our family. So we have a lot of friends there and even on in the West Coast and in Chicago as well. And so I, I think it's it's a movie, you know, ultimately for it's for me, it's for them, the community, but it's also for everybody else. It's like spreading the message of uh, this history and even like and, and also empowering like minorities to like or Asian people, you know, to look at this and be like, oh, this is kind of like what I'm going through right now. Mm. My own identity. I question it. You know how this makes me feel more comfortable. You know, you did fairly recently. I mean, you had lived in Athens, Georgia, and you lived in New York, and you'd gone back to Norfolk. But this is your first extended stay here in the West, right? <laughs> extended stay. Yeah, this is your first like <laughs> like living on the West. What's Coast. going on? Yeah. Like, what do you think? Do you think that like kind of coming to the like seat of Japanese American culture? Do you think that's going to like change your path at all? I mean, it's probably it's already changed. You mm. know, I think. Um, I mean, I moved here for uh, my fiance, Kimberly Dill. Uh, he's a professor at SU. <laughs> shout out, shout out. <laughs> shout she out. may She's, be listening. She may be yeah. listening. She's amazing. Um, but this is the first time on the West Coast. And honestly, it's really changed my perspective. You know, just in that she's, you know, well, she's a philosopher, but also um, the West Coast, living on the East Coast, you're so close to this kind of like Judeo-Christian Eurocentric ideology that it's just in, entrenched everywhere. And then when I moved to California and then see this whole West Coast, which is far removed from the East Coast, and you kind of see this Asiatic influence when yeah. there's like Hindu religion, Buddhism. Mm-hmm. And I, I've, I've, I'm impressed. It's like a, it's a, it's it's really. I can see why there's a lot of hippies here, and 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 we're very progressive in in general. You know. Yeah. Anytime I, I'm on the East Coast, I'm like, I got to get back. I can't help it. It's <laughs> like it's. I, I'm a permanent West Coast person for sure. Yeah. It's got a um, vibe. Yeah. yeah. Um, we have had uh, Kishibashi here in the studio. Um, it has been so much fun to hear your music and to just hear about this amazing documentary. November 8th, Castro Theater, you're playing, yeah. See you there. Um, we're going to go out to uh, one more of your songs. Um, and again, thanks so much for playing live here. Thank you. Huge fan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. There's a pause for a second. To remember the very words I'd written them with symbols From a memory that occurred There was a time There was a place for us For every voice that never sang For everyone I trust I am with you I belong with you Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.